You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning. Welcome to the show, wherever you are in the world. It is Wednesday, the 17th of August, which means it's the first day of the York Ebor Festival and it is the 2022 running of the Judmont International, one of the great all-age middle distance races in the world. And today the stage is set for Baid to take a step into the unknown and confirm superiority over 10 furlongs as he has been through his undefeated career so far over a mile. Lee Mottishead, the senior rider from the Racing Post, is with me. Uh, he is treading in the in the footprints of giants. 10 years since Frankel, 13 years since his own sire, See the Stars. Um, what a special horse he is already, Lee. What are we expecting this afternoon? Well, I think what we're hoping for is he doesn't follow in the footsteps of Brigadier Gerard, another giant, 50 years ago, who got beaten in the very first running of what was then a race uh, sponsored by a, a, a tobacco producer. Yeah, the Benston and the Hedges Benson Gold Benson Cup. Gold is Cup. there a Roberto, however, the mighty Roberto? Is there a Roberto and, and a brilliant ride in this race, do you think? I'm not sure I can see the current Mishriff or Native Trail filling that that role of Roberto. It's, it's, it's a, a fascinating race just because we're seeing a champion, a superstar doing something new, which is always what you want to see, a, a new test for Bayid. And of course, there are, there are basically three options. One is he's as good over a mile and a quarter as he is over a mile, in which case he wins. One is he's not as good over a mile and a quarter as he is over a mile. And then you're asking, well, how much can he afford to regress and still win the race? And the other possibility, and I think it's a real possibility, based on his breeding, based on the way he races, and based on what connections say, and that is he's a better horse over a mile and a quarter than a mile, in which case we could be in for something special. But I'd also say if that is the case, Nick, we'd be in for something slightly disappointing as well. Because if we have reached the point where today we see Bayid running over what William Haggis believes could well be his best distance, and then we know we only have one more chance to see him mm. over that distance before he retires. I think, quite honestly, I would feel slightly shortchanged. So I'm hoping he are you, dazzles. Are today. you starting now? Are you leading the charge well, to, to, to try and persuade Shaker Hissler to keep this horse in training? Well, we know it's not going to happen. It's not, ha- not going to happen. But let's not forget, he didn't race as a two year old. So we're only seeing him in his second season. Mm. You know, generally, a horse who goes on to race as a top four-year-old will have raced at two as well. So we'd be in the and third And would have run year. in classics. Absolutely. We haven't actually seen that much of Bayid. And for all that people like you and me and the listeners this pod, Nick, will be um, fascinated by Bayid today, will love watching Bayid today and have loved watching him so far, I think we would be deluding ourselves if we said he'd become some sort of public horse yet. He hasn't. He's a racing horse. And he hasn't, he hasn't moved beyond those, those racing boundaries. And he's only got two more races to contest, and he probably won't do. Um, so, yeah, there is part of me that would love to see him race on. But if he wins today and he wins impressively, I think that there would be a, a real sense of that. And, of course, the other thing, Nick, as well, and this has been referenced on the pod in the past, and others, others have suggested it too, if he does go and win by three lengths today mm. and he has one more race left, 
shouldn't that race be on the first Sunday in October in Paris? It's been spoken about, hasn't it? The idea that if he gets today's distance well, he could then step up further and take in the arc. Again, like his, his own father did, and we'll be hearing a bit more of that in just a few moments' time. The thing about this day for, for Frankel particularly, not so much these, but for Frankel particularly, yes, he was going into the unknown, but it, the dimensions of this track effectively pan flat with a big long straight mean that it is somewhere you can turn on the style you know as Mishrif did last year if you're going to look impressive somewhere you're likely to do it here if you're going to produce a marquee performance it's probably going to be at York I'm going back to my youth relative youth Lee I remember Royal Anthem and Gary Stevens demolishing a field here one of the most impressive performances I've ever seen Halling did it twice with Frankie Dettori looking between his legs do you remember I do I do and of course it's in some ways it's almost easier to do that now than it was in those days because for most of the time when we were growing up watching racing at York Nick they would turn to the home straight and they would stick to the far L there was always a possibility you might be trapped on the fence with nowhere to go these days and I'm sure they'll do this in the big race again today they turn into the straight and they fan out across the race course so you're not even going to be in a situation whereby uh, Jim Crowley is struggling to find find a run and because it's such a long home straight and because we know that what Baid has is this lethal acceleration Jim Crowley could should be able to just wait and, and time it to to the, the point where he wants to go and, and let those burners mm. let those burners power up and, and go did you know that Jim Crowley was quite superstitious I did not know this he is tell me more he is well I, I called him this morning and yeah. to his great credit he immediately picked the phone up yep obviously didn't flash up my name <laughs> um, but we had a we had a very friendly chat and I said you know I really wanted just to, to dig into to how how you approach uh, the morning of a race like this how you're feeling and he said do you know what Nick I'd I'd rather not. I'm a bit superstitious and I've managed to avoid everything so far. I said, well, far be it from me to be blamed for getting this horse beaten today. Yeah, and listen, I completely understand why he would feel like that. And it would be, it would be weird if you didn't, in his position, feel both nerves and a degree of pressure. I mean, you, you only have to listen to what William Haggis says after one of Bayeux's races and it's plainly obvious that he doesn't enjoy that experience mm. that he almost wants to, to hide away during the races because I guess when you reach a point where well actually I, I'm going I'm to change what I was saying here Nick, you, you reach a point when you have a horse like Bayeux where you've got more to, to lose than gain in some ways because everyone expects a horse to win going back to what we were talking about originally today is different because there is something new yeah. about today he's not just once again going over a mile, beating the best milers, which we know he should be able to do. Today he faces a new test. So I'd say for the connections, as well as for us, the fans, there is something different about this contest this afternoon, which makes it even more interesting. Well, of course, everybody will talk about Frankel because it's 10 years since he danced up the up the straight in the Knavesmire to post one of the most memorable performances of all time but it was only three years before that that Baid's own sire the the great see the stars won the won the same race in what I thought was one of the most compelling horse races I've, I've ever watched there were only four runners three of them came from Bally Doyle uh, two pacemakers master craftsman who was a hell of a horse and see the stars came and did him in in track record time Mick Kinnam, of course was the man who rode uh, see the stars to, to all his victories and, and is with me now um, Mick a lot of people will remember different days with that horse but for different reasons there was something really different and magical about the international just almost but with that sort of cycling pursuit style of it um, well, what are your memories of the day what strikes you most about it uh, yeah, it was just a tactical 
you know, Bally Dial had to sort of see what they could do with three horses to get me beat, I suppose. <laughs> uh, within the within uh, all within the rules of racing, of course. But um, yeah, so it went well until everything was going swimmingly until Johnny sort of kicks through the middle of the two pacemakers, and I have to decide if the follower come come up around and go down the middle of the track. And That's not really. Hard. Did that? Did that take you by surprise? You must have. You must have played all the scenarios in your head beforehand. You were that. You had been the Bally Doyle stable jockey. There's nothing they could teach you about what what some of the likely scenarios were. Uh, you really sort of couldn't. Didn't know how it, that one was going to play, but you're always going to be able to play a card when it when you got it. Um, and when that point came, like I d- didn't want my horse to go down the middle of the track and take it up early and in the straight because he's he's you know he was too intelligent he he didn't he'd uh, idle if he was in front on his own you know um so i decided to kick in the middle but i didn't want them to close it quickly so i had to kick in quick to follow johnny and of course my fella took off and ran up he ran into the back of him and then i took a pull and he decided well make your mind of what you want me to do (laughs) and um a bit of a flat spot after that and then picked up well at the end to win to win well as usual yeah as as usual as you were saying he was a, a beautiful horse and still is uh, I, to what extent do you think all those Bally Doyle horses that came to have a go at him from fame and glory in the derby to Rip Van Winkle in the Coral Eclipse to the two pacemakers plus master craftsman in the in the Judmont International and then uh, on to the Irish Champion Stakes to what to what extent do you think all those very good horses actually made see the star's reputation in a way because you had some context as to what he was beating yeah yeah they were all very very good horses and they were they were all freshened up to take him on as an individual and then you know so it was testament to the horse that he was able to turn up every day and still be able to beat the fresh horses you know i i never forget john ox saying coming to this race to york that he was he'd almost left him a bit short because he was he he wanted this to to be the stepping stone to to the irish champion stakes how much courage does it take to to train a horse for a race like this like that Ah, of course a lot but then again good trainers have to have it um just that even take up that profession you want plenty of courage <laughs> um so yeah you know john knew his house very well um and, and of course having to sort of step away from the irish derby and then go on to the eclipse you know you after priming a horse or a derby and then you hang fire and and then go a shorter trip it's you know so it, you would have thought at the time it would have taken a bit out of him, so John would have sort of eased on him a bit, and and, and uh, you'd have you know your eyes on the autumn. Are you doing too much or not? So you'd always, you'd err a slight bit of caution. So you know, the horse gets you gets you out of these things. One of the beauties of this game is we follow pedigrees, and there's that lovely symmetry with Baida, a son of See the Stars, his best son, looking to extend that unbeaten record today. When you watch Baida racing, do you? Do you see similarities? Do you see the two horses as being cut from the same cloth? You would. You'd, he travels like he's like he's dead, um, and sometimes he just takes a stride or two to go and pick up. He, you know, he seems to do do just enough too. Uh, he seems to be a very intelligent horse, like he's dead. Uh, we talk about that quite a bit. Horses saving a little bit for themselves. Did you always feel with with see the stars when you were riding him that? 
you were never getting quite to the bottom of him? No, he always had something, always. He was never tired horse uh, after any race, you know. He, he'd never blow too hard um, and blow off very quick, you know. So, yeah, he always had something up his sleeve. And, and for you as a jockey, the, the knowledge that there's always something there for you, that if there's a narrow gap, you're going to have the horse to go for it, does that enable you to ride more courageously if you like go take take inside routes cut corners i'm thinking really you know if you're riding the international you're riding the arc as well yeah absolutely he was always there when you really needed him um and even in in, in the arc and in spades when you know his best ever performance was to find that gap um very quickly and, and put the race to bed and and that's the way i rode him in the arc on most races knowing that there be a point in time where you're going to need it, and I'll know. I know he's there. He was there, so you're never nervous about it. I, I was always struck by, even though he he flashed across the skyline like a comet, he was in and out in a season effectively. The 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 speed with which the the racing public took to the horse and and warmed to the horse when you came back in after races like the Eclipse and the Judmont International, the Irish Champion Stakes, and the Arc, had you ever experienced receptions like that earlier in your career? No, not really. You know, you could see that people were gathering. You know, there was a momentum gathering, and his following was gathering. And then, it, you know, there was fantastic reception for him. And like I, the reception he got in the pre, in prior to the act was phenomenal. Because I remember saying to John, "Wow, they clapped him into the ring." Um, you know, they came from all around the world to see him. I just said to John, "I hope they're clapping in ten minutes." <laughs> Before that horse came along, you'd won countless derbies, you'd won Melbourne Cups, you'd won Breeders' Cups, you'd, you'd won everything there was to win, let's face it. Um, how, but to what extent did he really complete your career? Uh, to what extent did he really did, did he really make you feel fulfilled? Well, you're remembered by a great horse, um, and it was great that, that I was able to finish on a horse of, of, of that standard, you know, and... Uh, rather than be remembered by, you know, finishing and, and not being able to do it very well. Yeah, Mick Kinnan there with fond memories uh, of See the Stars. Uh, and just something that struck me when I was talking to Mick Kinnan, Lee, and I'm, I'm men- mentioning, mentioning it to him there, you need, you need good horses in your wake, don't you, to give you context when, you're, when you want to be considered one of the greats. That, the Franco's cascading form, you know, James Willoughby often talks about it, when he had St. Nicholas Abbey and Farr and Acceleration, these multiple group one winners way in his wake. And you know, that's why it's important that the others kind of show up today. That's absolutely right, yeah. I mean, that, that, is, what, that is what really told us how good Franco was. It wasn't just the flamboyance and the brilliance of his performances, it's what he was beating. And, and see the stars, I mean Aidan O'Brien just kept, as, yeah. as Mick said there, he kept throwing a fresh one in. He oh did. yeah, you've had your Rip Van Winkles, I'll, I'll toss you a fame and glory or a master craftsman or whatever. He did. Now, of course, it's not by his fault that the only horse Aidan can toss on this occasion is High Definition, who, with the best will in the world, isn't worth talking about in the same in the same sentence as some of those might, previous I think he might well I think enough. he might yeah enough, I, I, he ran a cracking race at, at Curry, didn't he? Well. is he really mm. okay that's a good sign and the track I know he didn't he didn't perform in the Great Vulture last year but if you'd imagine the track that would suit high definition it's this one you imagine Ryan will let him roll along and see what happens the opposition isn't of the calibre that that, that, um, that Frank will face Mishriff doesn't appear to be as good as he once was and we have the issue at the start I thought Ted Vout was saying last week that 
if um, if Mishrif beats Baye today, he is therefore the best horse in the world. Well, I'm sorry that that doesn't that well, doesn't. This podcast, that was a this podcast, 364 days ago, was titled "Is Mishrif the Best Horse in the World?" And he looked it when he won this race yeah. last year. But sadly, he hasn't gone on really since then. Although you could argue he was unlucky in the eclipse, but I don't think he's as good a horse as he showed. Uh, at York on this day last year. Although, as you made point in the, in the pod yesterday, he just doesn't like Ascot. It's not his no, place. No, no. And Native Trail, as good as he has been this year, he hasn't, he hasn't really gone on to be the horse that we thought he might be. He's, been, he's done a pin of two boat. He's gone on to be a very, very good three-year-old, but he hasn't gone on to be that outstanding, exceptional racehorse that we hoped he might be. So the opposition isn't quite there um, today to Bayi, but if he can beat horses like Mishrif and like Native Trail by three, four, five lengths, then that will be uh, a stunning performance. All right, let's just have a, a quick word about the day and the week as a whole, Lee. I know York are anxious about the, the rail strikes we're gonna, which are going to affect the crowds, anxious about walk-ups as well. William yeah. Darby was talking to me yesterday about that. But on the whole, their advanced ticket sales are very good and the racing is right up to scratch. We've talked about it a lot. And I know you wanted to make a point about the investment in prize money. I did, yeah. I mean, we, we talk about prize money an awful lot in British racing and we have a lot of soul-searching and we ask questions of ourselves and we often lament the situation. But you look at this meeting and this day summed it up. You have not only um, an incredibly valuable job on international, one million pound pot there. You've got valuable group races with the Voltager and the Acom Stakes as well. But this card has four handicaps. Every one of those handicaps is worth 100 grand. 100 grand two-mile handicap, 100 grand nursery, 100 grand sprint handicap, 100 grand fillies handicap. Those races would not need to be run for 100 grand. Comparable races are run at other major festivals for half that money, and they would get similar fields. But York goes all out to reward the participants to try and get the best possible turnouts they can for the races. And that is... That is such a laudable thing to do. I mean, I, this is... I've, I've said this before in the pod and I've written in the Racing Post, Nick. I think this is the model example of how a race course should be run. They get, I think, everything right, both in terms of how they look after participants and how they look after racegoers. I'm from... I'm, I'm born and bred Lancastrian, but my heart sings <laughs> when I come to this part of the other side of the Pennines. It's a wonderful race course. And so you only have to look at the seven races we've got today and the prize money pumped into those races to see why it's so good. Everyone loves a winner at York, right? Especially if you are a Yorkshire-based syndicate, though Nick Bradley's tentacles spread across the land and probably across other lands as well. The extraordinary Oscula was a winner uh, just the other day, again, uh, of a a pattern race. We'll come to her in a moment because she might be out again quickly. But he's breaking new ground today by running five, five in one race at York, uh, the um, five furlong Phillies handicap at 4.45 this afternoon. Nick, you're going to run all five as well? Yeah, it looks that way. Last night when I went to sleep, I was thinking I'll probably be taking two of them out. Um, York's had a bit of rain. Apparently, the going sticks around seven this morning. Um, I looked on the, the track map, and it, three furlongs of the five furlongs is good ground. The other three, the other two furlongs is good, good in places. Um I think right now, certainly all five are going to travel to the race course and, you know, I expect them to run. I'm just having a look at their prices at the moment. Corazon, William Buick, shortest price, 
Round about 8 to 1. Gilded's about a 12 shot. Fast response, similar. Battle of 14s. Helena Darling's 2025s. And Sophie Starr's generally a 33 shot. Is that how you see them? Is that the pecking order they should be in? Or have, uh, have the bookmakers made any mistakes there? Um, so the draw is going to be a factor. Um, I, I think right now you'd want to be up the middle. Um so just to run through them, covers on, we were on a um, Asuka over five, and she ran real well on a return to it, a return to the track. Stepped up to six, that was the wrong thing to do. Running the Shergar Cup, um, comes back to five. She's the shortest one. I think that's basically down to the fact that it's got Bowie and Buick next to their names. Um, Gilded would be my pick of them all. Um, so she was slightly wrong after she ran at York last time. Um, she had an issue with the back that's been corrected um, she did a very good piece of work this week uh, sorry last week um, and yeah she would be my pick fast response the softer the ground the better she could have a good draw in the stall 16 some people are telling me you want to be high this morning hello my darling needs to return to form but we take seven off she's getting a stone off gilded and if you watch that air run if she gets a stone then she'll, she'll finish in front of her and Sophie Star's a bit of an enigma Saddle slip last time, um, but no kind of race. She was in the stalls too long, so that's why she's a big prize. But if she was to run like she ran at Musselburgh, and she could, then she'd run a massive race. Um, you know, I'd love to see what the race looked like after a furlong, and then I'd be able to tell you which one I fancy. But um, it, it shows it must be quite good at buying fast fillers, isn't it? I think we know you're all right at doing that. I'm not. I'm not going to blow any more sunshine in your in your direction. But I am going to to blow some in the direction of Oskula, who you began campaigning domestically, having had a trip to Saudi Arabia. You began campaigning her again domestically on Oaks Day on the third of June. Since when she's run a further one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times, and she's out again at the weekend. What's the secret to this filly? Um, so Saudi was definitely an error. Um, yeah, less said about that, the better. Um, <clears throat> George doesn't do a lot with her in between races, and she just, she just, she's just got a great constitution. She loves the scrap. Um, her work at home's never been great, but when she goes to a race, she, she comes alive. Um, I, she loves, you know, described as like a ground almost. She loves running on those tight turning tracks. Uh, where she can sit handy, turns into a sprint, and away she goes, and she you know she sticks her neck out and she battles. Um, yeah, I mean Ryan doesn't say much, but when he was in Doval on Monday, um, he was he had a lot of admiration for the horse. She's she, she just you know she's she, she's mentally tough. She won at Doval, won her won a Group Three at Doval. She'd won a Group Three at Goodwood as well, and and she won a nice race at Carlisle earlier in the season. She's taken you to all the big shows, and you're wheeling her out again Saturday. What does she run in Saturday? So it's a group three, three-year-olds only. This time it's against the Colts. There was only four left in yesterday morning. Um, I think three of them are French horses and then check and challenge of William Knights. Um, it looks a similar similar task to, to what she faced on Monday. Um, so and it, it just looked easier to go there than to go and run against the older Colts in England later, in, later on in the month. And have you managed to get someone to ride her? I've got Barcelona booked to ride her. Um, yeah, the hardest bit was was getting staff out there um, to look after during the week, but we got that sorted. 
Um, so yeah, Mikel Barzlow takes a ride. Right, day one of the York Ebor Festival, one of 17 specially designated world pool days during the course of the year. You'll have heard my interview with the Tote UK CEO, Alex Frost, a few weeks ago, where he was saying that you know, north of six, seven, eight hundred thousand pounds being returned to the racecourses each world pool day. Uh, Jamie Hart is with me now. Uh, Jamie, um, today, how, how does today appeal to world pool punters particularly? I think you know, it's going to be a really interesting day. We've got uh, plenty of big fields. We do have two six-runner races, so they, they drop under the uh, requirement for the Quinella Place, which is the, the really big pool over, over in Hong Kong. But I think on every other day, we'll have full fields of at least seven runners. I think it's going to be interesting. One thing, people talk about, you know, Baid, is it a betting race? Um, is that, you know, it's very short. But when you look across Goodwood, we had, um, you know, Baid ran at Goodwood, uh, the, the, I think the second and third favourites were second and third, and the, you know, and, and bar them, was a, it was 20 to 1 bar those, and the trifecta still paid over a tenner. You know, so nine to one them to come in order in their betting order. You know, I, th- I think sometimes people mustn't worry about betting the obvious on the exact on the exactables, the trifectables, because out in Hong Kong, a lot of people just put in the field, so the big outsiders get overbacked. So, you know, when we get to the good, to, well, even the Goodwood Cup when Kiprios, Stradivarius, and Trushan were first and second and third, it was twenty-two to one the trifecta. It was twenty-two to one, you know, not to be an upset. So there's plenty of value in there to play in the world pools, and don't don't be afraid of going for the short ones. Yeah, so that would be that. Yeah, you'd play the Baid Native Trail Mishrif trifecta. So my clever advice to people yesterday to box up Baid and. Uh, the, the the horse that was memorably described by Matt Chapman as a giraffe, high definition, um, might might actually not be that sensible. I thought I was being clever, you see, trying to get a bit of value. Yeah, and it's, I, th- I think uh, just the straight Mishrif, you know, the exact Mishrif today, it was quite interesting. I've been looking at the early pools. Mishrif is paying kind of fourteen ninety, and uh, high definition is paying... I think I think fifteen sixty or something. There's about there's about eighty p between them. So, you know, I think I think it could be that Mishrif because he hasn't got a lot of ones next to his name. He might the the Hong Kong punter doesn't really fancy him, and he might overpay. The the, the very obvious exactor might might pay a lot more than you think. Lee, just I'm turning our attentions away from York for a sec. Uh, it was kind of odd time to make the announcement, but it was announced yesterday. Uh, Cheltenham have, have capped their crowd, and that's something that Royal Ascot do and have done to quite good effect. And you've got to you've got to know you're going to fill it every day to start capping it. But it was massively popular this year. Is that a good thing? Oh, I think it's a very good thing. Yeah. Um, for that, I remember my first conversation on this sort of subject came with the team at Ascot after that Royal Ascot year. Uh, last year where we had 12,000 people every day and they were joking how, how much more of an enjoyable experience it had been for the people who were there and obviously you can't run a sustainable Royal Ascot with 12,000 people mm. there every day but it was the, the thing that I think got them thinking do we just need to bring down the numbers here and I think anybody who was there at Royal Ascot this year will have said it was a more enjoyable experience I don't think anybody who was at the Cheltenham Festival this year would have said they would have wanted to be there with fewer people for enough, I, I was speaking to um, one half of the couple who's, who run the B&B, I say at every year, uh, Nick, for, for, for York. Um, and he was saying that he'd been there on the Wednesday at the festival last year. Now, of course, the Wednesday was the day when the rains came. Mm. And he did say it was a pretty miserable experience. 
Um, but he also made the point that even at a normal busy Cheltenham Festival day, so the Thursday or the Friday, you would not be able to do what you would want to do as a racing fan, which is go to the paddock, get across the betting ring, place your bet, and then find a spot in the stands to watch the race. Now, this might not necessarily change that, bringing the numbers down to 68,500 people every day, which compared to the, the really busy days at the festival, knocks off about 5,000 people on the Thursday and the Friday. But it should still make the experience slightly more enjoyable, because I did think... I don't know what, how you feel it because you're probably you're down in the in the wins enclosure, aren't you? But for those of us, no, I I I, spe- I have do have to do a fair bit of trolling around, yeah, yeah, especially especially sort of late morning, early afternoon. Well, I I do I do find, and I certainly again found last year that it is easier getting around on the opening day than when you get to the Thursday Friday. Mm. So on the basis that the opening day attendance from this year is pretty much what they're bringing the new peg down to, I think it should make a, dis- a difference. And I also think listen, we've all been uh, we've all been criticising, or a lot of us have been criticising the idea of a five-day Cheltenham festival, and we await news on that whenever it comes. But the Jug Club have taken a decision here that will inevitably cost them money because they're going to lose about what ten thousand sales across the Thursday and the Friday but it's for the wider good of the, of the people who were there. And this needs probably, probably long-term is commercially sensible because if you go to Cheltenham Festival for the first time on a day like Thursday or Friday this year, you might not want to return. But if you have a better experience, you will come back. So I think it's a move that is a, it should be applauded and it's very sensible. The two-year-old race today at York is the Tattersall's Acom Stakes, the Newmarket-based auction house lending their sponsorship to this prestigious seven-furlong event. Jason Singh from Tattersall's joins me now. And one of a, a number of interesting sponsorships that you have uh, throughout the calendar, Jason, and your relationship with York I know is a particularly important one. Just tell me why. Well, Nick, I think I think York just does a, a fantastic job. Um, that needs to be said. Um, you know, first up, uh, one hundred and fifty thousand pounds for the Tattersalls Acom Stakes today uh, is um, you know headline sponsorship. Um, great stuff from from York, and so yeah, it's um, and it's also the, the the northern trainers and owners up here. You know, they're very uh, very important to us. The, um, big big supporters of Tattersalls and so it's good to put a little bit back into the sponsorship here we've um, we're sponsored here since 2014 and uh, yeah looks at looks a competitive renewal this year uh, who are you cheering on um well we've got five um tats uh, sold horses in the race so it'd be, it'd be, it'd be slightly difficult to pick one um <laughs> but uh, it, it it does look a great great race with um you know eight of the nine runners are last start winners and um and the only one that isn't um, millstream you know looks to looks to have a very um very good chance as well for, for jane chapelheim so uh, difficult to, to pick one out but um yeah, it looks like, looks a great renewal. Yeah, but you're happy with that as a result as far as five Tattersalls graduates going in your own race. Uh, tell me what's coming up because you've got a busy period coming your way. Yeah, the sales are starting to come thick and fast. Uh, um, starting with the, the August sale is uh, on the August um, 31st this month, 360 lots catalogued. Um, you know, that's a sale that's only been going for two years that we, we introduced as a, a result of, of COVID back in 2020. And, um, you know, this year has already produced five group enlisted winners, including Tempest, who won our Tattersall Sovereign Stakes at Salisbury um, last week. So that was a very timely reminder. Bought for only 25000 by Archie Watson and the Blanford Bloodstock team. So that was a, a great reminder for everybody that the value that can be had there. Um, after that, the, the following week, we've got the Somerville Yearling Sale, 
um, you know, that's a sale that uh, Bradsall came out of last year. Um, you know, Coventry Stakes winner bought for only 12,000 guineas, which is uh, a fantastic advertisement for the sale. And um, the Weatherby Super Sprint winner, Eddie's Boy, bought for 45,000 last year. So, you know, 313 sharp, precocious yearlings um, should be should be plenty of reason for people to come along and have a look at them. And Jason, we were talking the other day with Jimmy George about book one, but the the October sales is is not just about book one. There's a lot. There's a there's a lot of weight in there. No, absolutely. And um, the all the yearling catalogs for the October yearling sales books one, two, three, and four are now all online. It's going to be a busy two weeks, but you know this is a sale that um, has produced three classic winners this year. You know, there's a crown in the Derby, Magical Lagoon, and the Irish Oaks. And um, Native Trail, who won the Irish 2000 guineas, so uh, plenty of reason for people to come shopping. And of course, you'll see. And of course, you'll see Native Trail today and Magical Lagoon tomorrow in the Yorkshire Oaks. Jason, thanks so much. Brilliant, thanks, Nick. Well, York Racecourse does not stage any event on the scale of the four-day Ebor Festival throughout the year. It's hugely important uh, to the area and to the local economy. And I'm very, really pleased today to be joined by Kevin Pennington, who's the general manager of food and beverage at York. Kevin, I, I know you're absolutely manic this morning, so I, I'll try not to keep you too long. Just give me an idea of, of the scale of this event compared to everything else that you do. Well, for instance, um, this, this meeting, um, we've got over 85 bars open for this meeting. We'll be serving 15,000 bottles of champagne. That's 140,000 pints of beer over the four days, 4,000 jugs of pims. That's to do those jugs of pims, we're going to need to do 800 kilos of fruit to go in the pims, 10 tonnes of ice. So the, the numbers are staggering over four days. And, and, and to service all that, um, we're just about to start signing in all our staff. So we've got 75 chefs who have been working since five this morning, 75 managers. And then to complement them, we've got 650 staff due to start turning up today. And I'm, I'm pleased to say that the majority of them are local staff that we've got. Um, we're in a good position with staff. Uh, it's one of those events with it being such a high-profile event and a really sexy venue to work at. The you know people, staff, book time off to work for these these four days for us. So it's um, it's fantastic, really, uh, and everyone's really excited to sort of get get racing. I think I think you've, there's been such a big build-up with it. You just want to get racing, don't we now, and sort of see the crowds in and feel the buzz, especially on the Saturday when we've got. 28,000 people here. That's uh, going to be a great atmosphere. Uh, Kevin, how long have you been involved with, with York Racecourse? Well, funny enough, just since January. Uh, um, although prior to that, I was with the company that um, York Racecourse Hospitality are uh, uh, part of CGC events. Uh, and so prior to that, I was with the company for 23 years. So, yeah, but I've just been here for, since, since January. Uh, but I've got a lot, long history with the Racecourse. I've worked... I think my first day with CGC events was in 13th of May 1996, which was a dancy meeting here at York. So I still remember that day walking to the race course, funny enough. But, yeah. was, that, was that the day Glory of Dancer won the dancy by any chance? <laughs> I don't have a clue. Uh, that's a good question. I, I, should, I should research that, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll look yeah. it up. I'll look it up. Paul Kelloway, I think it might have been. Um, yeah. Kevin, are you, you, you sound like you're a racing fan as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, my, my main priority is food, I have to say. So, yeah, that's my, my main priority is food and drink uh, for me all the way. Um, yeah, but it's, uh, yeah, it's a great atmosphere and, and the, the buzz of... I, I do remember, actually, I think it was when Frankel uh, ran at York and that was an, ama- that was an amazing atmosphere. Um, I don't know if you were here then, but it was just... 
I was sort of like it's like time stood still almost as, as it sort of um, raced up the final furlong or up the final furlong. It was, it was a great atmosphere. And seeing the stars was another. I sort of just remember the big big names, so it'd be good to see by running this this meeting as well. So I'm quite excited to sort of. It's, it's always nice to say I was there <laughs> on the, on, those, on those big days. So yeah. And obviously that that sort of infectious uh, energy of the of the venue gets to you as well. I can hear it in your voice. Yeah, it does. Yeah, and I think it's with the staff as well. Everyone's really um, as as pride working within part of the racing team, race course team, um, and uh, you know not just the racing, but we do lots of events outside racing as well. And it's it's a real pride. It's, it's an iconic venue, not just in Yorkshire, but within the UK as well. So it's. Um, yeah, I think there is a, a lot of pride within our team of people who, you know, we've got team members who've worked here for well over 20 years. So, and, and it's probably quite unheard of in this day and age that uh, the long, longevity of service that we've got. And York's always been famous for selling its champagne at very reasonable prices. Has it managed to, has it managed to keep doing that even as time yeah, gets harder? Absolutely, yeah. We'll be serving 15,000 bottles of champagne. Uh, our entry-level bottle of house um, champagne is... £38.50, so still under £40, which is probably unheard of any other racing venue like this, a premier sporting venue, definitely. Um, and I'm pleased to say that our uh, wine suppliers, House of, Ten, House of Town Ends, are based in um, Humberside, East Yorkshire. They're sort of a great supplier. We've, we've managed to do this because we've got a great uh, partnership, a relationship with them where we buy We've got we've got wines on our list that we bought 15 years ago and laid down in bonds to, to enable us to sort of still be able to offer them the fine wines that we're doing in, in, in good value. So it's it's not just thinking last year let's get this on the list because it's good value. It's it's a longevity and, and we've got a great procurement team that do that. Kevin, great to talk to you. Enjoy the four days. I will absolutely enjoy it. So yeah, and are you with us as well? I'll be there. I'll be. I'll be with you. I'll be with you all, all four days, and, and and very much looking forward to hopefully taking a bit of your hospitality as well as uh, as well as doing the day job. Yep, that's great. Well, you enjoy yourself here as well. Okay. Perfect. Thanks so much, Kevin. Take, take care now. Bye bye. Bye. All right. Thanks to all my guests today. What a day in prospect. Lee Mottishead has a tip for you. Yeah, I do. Um, so many options on a day like this, but I'm, I'm, I'm saving it till the, the very last race, the 520, the 100 Grand Nursery, Skybet Nursery. Uh, Kathy Come Home, representing Carl Burke and Danny Tudhope. She uh, won first time out, then didn't run a bad race at all in the Group 2 Albany at Royal Ascot. She hasn't run since then. She's coming back in the nursery today and she's the one I'm going for. Cathy, come home in the 5.20 at York. Lee, thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget, if you do enjoy this podcast, please do tell your friends, leave us a rating and or a review on your favourite podcast provider. We will see you again tomorrow. I wonder, will we be talking about the career-defining performance of the great Baid? See you then. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.